Welcome to the 40 Under 40 podcast with your hosts, Caitlin Cromit and AJ McQuarrie. They are two entrepreneurs who speak to other entrepreneurs under the age of 40, so you can learn from their successes and failures along their journeys of building businesses. 40 Under 40 podcast hopes to educate, motivate, and inspire people to pursue their dreams of starting a business, regardless of age. And now, here are your hosts, Caitlin and AJ. All right, welcome back to 40 Under 40. We're really excited about this podcast. Can't wait for all of our guests. Specifically, today's guest is really exciting. But you know, the primary goal with this podcast, AJ, right, was always like 40 under 40, right? We're going to do people under 40 years old. Entrepreneurs under 40, 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. It was cute. But then we were like, wait a minute. There are people who are over 40 who have a lot of value to add. (laughs) Yeah, and who have a lot of experience. So let's not leave those people out. So we're calling those people advisors. You know, as young entrepreneurs, we all look to people with more experience to help guide us and to help us figure out those things that we have no idea are about to come. So I think it's important that throughout our amazing under 40-year-old guests schedule, we sprinkle in a couple advisors so that we can have that voice of wisdom almost. That makes sense. Yeah. We want to have about a quarter of our guests be advisors. That's not to say these people, you know, started their business after age 40, because I know our guest today actually started his first business way before 40. In fact, in his 20s, and he was kind of in this startup world. And also the corporate world, which is very Also the corporate world. We're getting to hear that balance of like going from corporate to to the startup world and what that's like. Yeah. So our next guest, Mike Grandinetti, he has always been a mentor in my eyes. I don't even know if he knows that, but he's been a mentor figure to me. He has been continuously active in the fields of innovation, entrepreneurship, human-centric design, and digital marketing since earning his Bachelor of Science degree in engineering He went on to earn his MBA with distinction at Yale University. Yeah, that's crazy. This guy's amazing. He has experience. I mean, he's he's been in successful startups. He started successful companies, but now he's kind of moved almost to like the education side. Yeah, he teaches on the faculty at, get this, Harvard, Rutgers, Brown, and Berkeley, and remains closely affiliated with MIT, where he teaches undergrads, grad students, and executives. I mean, he does it all. It's kind of crazy. So I can't wait to meet him. Well, let's bring him on. Mike, welcome. I remember very vividly this uh, Young Leaders program that we met at, and you were the real entrepreneur in the room. You were building a real business while still on campus. Yeah, you facilitated this Young Entrepreneurs program that I was part of in Nova Scotia. So tell us how you got started in the world of entrepreneurship. Let me give you the short story, right? I, like many people in America, you know, is a child of immigrants. I wanted to please mom and dad. So I got my engineering degree, worked at Hewlett Packard in Silicon Valley, loved it. But while Bill and Dave were still running the shop, which was an extraordinary experience to work for those two legendary men, got my MBA at Yale and I worked at McKinsey. But while I was in Silicon Valley, the PC revolution had started. Silicon Valley really came into its own when I was there during that four-year period, right? Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and a lot of the legends today were just starting their companies. And so through osmosis, I was really incredibly affected by it. And I was too young to understand what a startup was as a 23, 24-year-old, just graduated engineer. But as I had time to reflect on that life, you know, while I was a business school at McKinsey, I said, you know what, that looks really cool. 
And the day that I started living for myself was the day that I left McKinsey, which was a very prestigious job and a very well-paid job in a very nice part of New York to go work in a startup in some dilapidated building in some rundown office park but yet it was what I was meant to do. Sounds like the entrepreneur dream. It wasn't that I have parents that are entrepreneurs. It wasn't that there was anyone in my family that was a role model. It wasn't common, but by observing what was going on in Silicon Valley and understanding the excitement of that unique era when it was really starting to hit its stride, it forced me to think about what I really wanted to do for myself professionally. Wasn't entrepreneurship back then sort of not a legitimate path. Oh, it was it was for geeks, right? So let's be very clear. If you were a tech entrepreneur, okay, it was a very esoteric thing. When I resigned at McKinsey at the time, if you left McKinsey at that era, you left to become a VP, senior VP of corporate development or business development or finance at a big brand. And when they asked me what I was going to do, and I said, I'm going to go do a startup, they looked at me as if I had lost my mind. There was not my parents... I don't think my parents still really understand what a startup is. And it's not that they're not smart. I think if you've never done one, you just really can't fully grok it. Mm -hmm. But it was, there was nothing cool about startups when I joined my first startup. This was not the path. Okay. But yet for me, it was the path. And eight startups later, having paid my dues to the startup gods and then some, um, it is, it's the best kind of addiction. And once it gets into the bloodstream, there is no Moderna vaccine for it. There's no Pfizer vaccine. <laughs> it just, you just have to live with it. Okay. Mm-hmm. What so, was that initial like first push for you? Like what was the drive that made you want to go to a startup from your cushy job? So McKinsey of course is a very elite institution and there's a lot of urban legend about what it's like to work at McKinsey. But at the end of the day, you're not working in a team environment typically. It's not a very collaborative place. You don't really feel like you're moving the needle, right? You're a conciliary, you're whispering in the ears of people and often through your partners. And so you're saying, I'm working 12 hours a day, six days a week. I can't tell if I'm having any impact. Yeah, it's just so big. It was overcompensation to prove to myself that what I did had some impact, right? We all want to have impact in the world, right? We all want to leave a footprint. And I really thought that the only way to really judge if I was leaving a footprint was by being an entrepreneur, right? Just like AJ with Karma Box, right? A big idea, 20 years ahead of its time, right? Healthy snacks. I mean, such a such a obvious thing today, but back then you had to fight tooth and nail to convince people that this was good stuff, right? So I'd say that was the initial thing. And it is the coolest game ever invented, right? It's the biggest Rubik's cube anybody could ever give you. And it takes a tremendous amount of mental discipline and, you know, kaleidoscopic thinking to put all those colors in the right places to make it work. Mark Cuban says it's the greatest sport. I mean, listen, it's not for everybody, right? I was lucky enough that my first two startups went public on the NASDAQ. I got to do no big deal of a couple of IPO roadshows. And, you know, so I saw the top of the mountain early. And I had worked with a lot of entrepreneurs that had been a part of four or five startups that had failed, which is much more typical. 
because you know the failure rates are you know 90%, 95%. But it wasn't so much the IPO as seeing this creative process, starting with a clean sheet of paper and creating something from nothing with a team of like-valued, like-minded people, right? I have a twin sister who is very much a bohemian. She's always been the artist. And creating art, of course, is incredibly creative, but there's something very creative about starting with a canvas. It's just a business model canvas. It's not, it's not a canvas you put oil on, right? And there's something unbelievably satisfying about creating art, but the company is the art. And so for me, that's kind of what's gotten into my blood. And so one thing led to another. And because to, to AJ's very astute question, it wasn't the coolest path back then. Having had that early success, having had a couple of IPOs, you become known in a small community. And so I was asked if I would get involved at MIT at a time when they were just literally forming their entrepreneurship center in a serious way and legitimizing the, st the study of entrepreneurship at a prestigious university. Stanford was ahead, of course, but MIT was one of the very first. Wow. Okay. Can I pause you real quick? MIT yeah. is not like, you know, <laughs> just a little deal. Like this is kind of a big deal. So what, like, how did they find you? How'd they seek you out? Yeah, well, it was 1996. I was just about 30 years old at the time. And and, you know, remember it, the entrepreneurial, the technical entrepreneurial community in 1996 was small, super small. We were just a bunch of people that were somehow obsessed with, you know, making the world a better place through technology, right? Using technology to solve problems. It was a great honor because it is the world's most respected technology institute. Um, but more important than that, it was, it was, it opened a door that I never thought I even wanted to open, right? It, I didn't have an ambition to be a professor, right? And to be clear, at MIT, a professor is someone with a PhD on an academic track who publishes peer-reviewed journal articles. That's my, not me, right? I'm the practitioner professor. But what I came to learn about myself very quickly is how much I loved sharing what I know about having built startups with others. And I really and, feel like that's almost, I'm not going to say better type of professor, but sometimes yeah. you can learn better from people who are actually doing it versus the people who have just learned about it, right? Caitlin, I wouldn't say sometimes, I would say always, right? And, and so, I'm just trying to be nice here. You're trying to be diplomatic. <laughs> I'm from Brooklyn. We don't, we dispense with that stuff, right? Yeah. We just go right, we just go right to it, right? No beating around the bush. <laughs> and, and not, listen, I, I'm working with a gentleman right now from UCAL Berkeley who is, he has a PhD, he has 75 patents to his name, but he lives in the real world, okay? And he is someone who has that sense of urgency, right? We have a very common approach. The typical PhD studying and, and teaching entrepreneurship has never been a part of a startup, has never been through sweating payroll, has never been through having to fire a founder, has never had a product, mm -hmm. okay? And until you've been through that, you just, you don't know what you don't know, right? And what I often would say to people is, if you're about to have a child, right, you think you know what you're getting into. Your friends tell you, your parents tell you, your brothers and sisters and cousins tell you, but you have not a clue, 
what you just signed up for. That's okay? a great point. Until you, you go know? through it, you don't know. Until you're bringing some child to the emergency room at two in the morning, okay? You don't know. And so to me, entrepreneurship is like that. So the thought that someone who has a completely academic understanding of entrepreneurship can actually teach entrepreneurship to me is, is ludicrous if I can be so bold. The way I've always taught entrepreneurship is experientially, right? You can't learn it from a book. When you see a student or, you know, you hear about their idea, what, what makes you be like, that's going to be a success. What makes you, you know, stop for a second and be like, you know, that person has it. And that's the, that's the key. It's, it's much more the latter, right? The idea, let's be honest, ideas are cheap. It's, it's never about the idea. It's about the person. It's about their character, their work ethic, right? It's when they say they're going to do something, they do it. There's not an excuse. Too often people, I'm going to do this and it doesn't get done. And, they, and they're yeah. very nonchalant. Mm -hmm. So what I would say, let me give an example. So we just ran this major global design sprint, five continents, right? Massive time zone differences. There was a number of different students that whatever it took, I mean, you know, whether they're up in the middle of the night, and I'm not saying that I want people to live unhealthy lifestyles on a regular basis, but they- I'm glad you it. clarified that because I yeah, feel no, like I that's mean, a we, thing that people think. <laughs> no, no, this is- You just want grit. I need grit, right? And, and they knew that this was a week that they were there to show up with their A-game because they were making an impression on 50 potential hiring authorities. And there were those who just figured it out. They managed across the time zones. They're young enough to manage a little bit of sleep deprivation. They're 18, 19 years old, right? And they worked to solve a problem. And there was a commitment there. And there was an, but more than that, there was an enthusiasm. There was, a, there was an unbridled enthusiasm that they couldn't hide if they wanted to. So uh, to me, the attitude and the grit and the commitment, right? Those are the things that to me are key. And then secondarily is their skills because we can teach them the skills. I can't teach them the attitude. Do you think some people are born with it and some people aren't? I really think so. I, you know, I think now sometimes what happens, right? What's one of the very interesting things is a lot of us might have this latent entrepreneur in us, as I guess I did, but it's not unlocked until you see role models that have done it that you can relate to. So there's this wonderful phrase that I love, which is you cannot be what you cannot see, right? And we see this a lot more in the Black Lives Matters movement now because of the lack of mentorship in the professional space for people of color. But if you look at even not that far from um, Nova Scotia, where, where AJ grew up in New Brunswick, Canada, this was not an entrepreneurial hotbed. And then a couple of companies were successful there. And all of a sudden, the entire community said, oh my God, these are New Brunswickians. If they can do it, I can do it. In Israel, Gil Schwed, Back when I did my second startup, created a company called Checkpoint Software, which is now an incredibly valuable security company, right? He was that iconic beacon. And when everybody saw Gil Schwed, they said, I can do it. And now in China, Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, played that role. So yeah, just so, having that locally, even just representing your town or, or yeah. someone that you can just relate to on some level that you see them and you and you and them.
Right. Jack Ma was missing, they thought, for oh, a while, yeah, yeah, but he yeah. came out. Yeah. That was creepy. He went really low profile. We won't go there. I don't want to get, you know, I, you're not, you're not. <laughs> That'll to... get too dark and political. This is now a true crime podcast. Yeah, Welcome. Exactly. <laughs> what, where was Jack Ma, really? Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> the real story. Yes, exactly. So, you know, so that's kind of the deal. But at the end of the day, I will tell you that there are some people that really want to be entrepreneurs, but it's not within them. And I'll give you just two examples. I've run a couple of hundred hackathons in my life, right? I'm, it's another thing I'm addicted to. And I was running some marketing hackathons for my company, for my startup. And I had an incredibly smart young woman from Mexico City. She was on one of the winning teams and we hired her as an intern and she was doing incredible work. And she came to me and said, Mike, I love working for you. I love working for your company, but I can't deal with this uncertainty, right? I can't deal with the emotional roller coaster, right? Some people just, their DNA does not allow them to deal with the inevitable ups and downs of a startup. It's just not inside them. And, and I said, God bless you. And we found her a great job at HubSpot. Great company. So, you know, so it's not like, you know, everyone's meant to do this. And it's, it's, you know, people should not feel bad if this is not the right fit. We have to find our calling. We all have gifts, but we also have a certain personality. So besides grit, what are some other attributes of a successful and strong entrepreneur in your eyes? I think despite the mythology, humility. Now, you know, we can say there's the Elon Musk's of the world, and he's a counterexample. Steve Jobs is a counterexample. But you need to realize you are never going to be the smartest person in the room and you shouldn't be. Right. And Cause then you're you not think, learning from anyone. Yeah. You're not learning. You're not taking counsel from anyone in, in the world of startups. It's changing so quickly. And there's so many things that need to be mastered. Not no one person is smart enough. I don't care who we're talking about. And so if you're not humble enough to take constructive feedback seriously when someone says your baby's ugly or your first product, your MVP is ridiculous, don't tell them they're stupid. And I've heard many people do that. Thank them profusely for being, you know, willing to give you that. Feedback. Be coachable. Be coachable. That's exactly right. That's exactly it. Be coachable. There was a, a fireside chat with a very, very successful Indian entrepreneur who had to be in his 60s by the time I saw this. He had five increasingly successful startups. He had just wow. sold his prior startup to Cisco for several billion dollars. Oh my goodness. He was a billionaire. He could have retired in his early 20s. Even his first startup was successful. Wow. And he sat there and he said to the interviewer who was his investor, why do you put up with guys like me? He goes, the minute that I stop listening to guys like you is the minute that I'm no longer relevant. Right? So here's this man who five for five, every startup more successful than the last, but a level of humility and a growth mindset and a coachability that said, I'm always learning. And I feel the same way. I'm a professor still. I'm still very active with lots of startups. I just did my last startup about two years ago. So I'm not that far removed from an operating role. I'm learning every day. I'm learning through conferences, I'm learning by mentoring. I'm learning. I'm learning new techniques, new approaches. Love that. I'm a student. And as a student, I become a better teacher. Totally. And a better Never yeah. stop learning. No. And it's, I know it sounds cliche, but I know way, way too many people that have. 
you know? Oh yeah. I've, I've yeah. met plenty of people who are just like, no, I know it all. Like I don't need yeah. to, you know, I don't have anything to gain from this, even if it and, is and, just a conversation. And that that's someone I will never mentor. Right. I mean, and you pick up very quickly because I don't, you know, I'm not going to talk to the wall. Right? Yeah. I want to feel like you're, you're having a, you're shaping someone who wants to be shaped. What do you ask someone to find out like to get to that answer yeah, quickly? I mean, at the end of the day, the first thing is right. If, if an entrepreneur tells me they're doing it because they want to make a lot of money, um, I'm, I'm, I'm emotionally and psychologically checked out almost instantaneously. Okay. I have nothing against making money, but there's different reasons to make money. Right. So the first thing is I want someone who's burning to solve a problem, cannot imagine the problem not being solved in this world, feel some level of personal ownership of solving that problem. Okay. Because it's an emotional roller coaster, RJ, as you know, and you're going to have some bad days. You're going to have some bad months. You're going to have a bad quarter. And if you don't have the emotional resilience to work your way through it, you're going to quit. And it's the people that just care deeply that are going to work their way through it. They're going to pick themselves up, dust themselves off, right? So to me, that's really where I get started. And money is not a strong enough motivator because it's not going to be there at first, most likely. And yeah. it's going to come and go. Listen, we entrepreneurship is a game and, and one of the measurements of success is an exit, right? And, and of course, we all want to be successful. But, but if you go into that for that reason, I can tell you there's a lot of easier ways to make a lot of money. You can go become an investment banker. You can be a trader on Wall Street. There's a lot of things you can do. Yeah, okay. but that's not the entrepreneur lifestyle. No, it's not the same satisfaction. It. Yeah. How do you, speaking of like the you know, emotional resilience. How do you feel like in the past you've been able to deal with failures and like startups that have failed or, yeah. you know, have helped other students through that? I think you have to take care of yourself physically and mentally. So, you know, I have a meditation practice that I've been pretty disciplined about for a long time. And when you, when you have that type of thing, things can roll off your back a lot easier. Um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm very fitness and health conscious. So, you know, so there's a certain, resilience that comes from just, you know, being well, you know, and, and having other pursuits outside of just the job, just the startup, right? So it's not the end of your life. And it's right? not your only identity. It's not your only identity, right? There's, there's more to you than the startup. So that's important, right? Yeah. So I think the second thing is for those many entrepreneurs that have had, you know, a bump in the road or even a complete failure, it's, it's making sure they understand that it's not a failure. It's a learning opportunity, right? It's, it's a very philosophical thing, but your ability to learn from this, to become better by this, right? To debrief them. And so what would you have done differently? Why do you think this turned out this way? And it's often not their fault, but you want to have them reflect on why this didn't maybe end the way that it could have ended. Right, right. right. And let them process that and encourage yeah. them to take some time and reflect. But right? what if there's a feeling of, especially with bankruptcy, like guilt, you yeah. owed people money, you owed investors, like how does an entrepreneur deal with that? Oh, <laughs> getting personal there, AJ, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously it's, you know, if we're talking about good Catholic guilt or good Jewish guilt, you know, you gotta go see your rabbi or you gotta go see your priest about that. Um, so there's certain kinds of guilt that, that, you know, even a good entrepreneurial mentor cannot help with. But this is a part of the process, right? I mean, when 90% of all companies fail, and this is a knowledge business, and all of the value is in the people coming into the building every morning and going back out at night, right? There's not, you know, you can only sell your chairs and your desk for so much money to pay back your investors, right? 
and and listen, most investors, if they're if they're really good investors, they're entrepreneurs themselves at one point, right? The best investors were entrepreneurs themselves. I would never take money from an investor that wasn't an entrepreneur, at least in the early, you know, series A, you know, C, series A, series B, because they have been on your side of the table. They know. I have a quick question going off of that because yeah. we are kind of interested in, in that aspect of it. Cause I know you are an angel investor. You have yeah. experience with that. What do you look for in a company that you're deciding to invest in? If not their, their, you know, the grittiness of the, of the yeah. founder. Well, a lot of it goes back to what we talked about it. You, you're betting on the founding team. Okay. Most, you know, and then, you know, and then the second thing is, are they playing in a domain where I can contribute, right? I, I'm never going to be a value to a biotech company. I don't have a, a, a degree in biology. I just don't know that market. So, you know, I'm very realistic about where I think I can add value and where I can't add value. Because if I can't add value, it's no fun, right? You know, if, if I want to make money, I'll just put it in, you know, put it into some investment. But if, you, if you're going to invest as, a, as an angel, you know, most of the fun is in helping the thing grow, right? So that's very important. And you want to be aligned with the vision, right? So if, if, again, if they're in it just for the money, thanks, I'm good, right? If they're committed to the problem, I want to know more. Um, I want to understand, you know, how committed they are, you know, have they left their day job? Are they all in right now? How do they think about financing? Do they want to try to bootstrap this? You know, are they going to waste way too much time up front, try to raise money before they really validated their idea, which never works? When should someone leave their day job? I mean, that is a very, very difficult question. It, it really so much depends on everyone's personal financial situation. If you're not comfortable, you know, without some other stream of income, you just shouldn't do it because it's going to paralyze you. Right. But this is that great leap of faith. Right. And, and there comes a point where there better be some people working full time. And if they're not, then there's really no reason to further, you know, mentor them because they're missing an opportunity. Mm -hmm. but, but but there's but it's a great question. There's no silver bullet to that answer. But you don't want your entrepreneurs being so uncomfortable financially that they, they can't sleep at night. Right. They need to be clear headed and, and you know, focused. Yeah. I mean, this is good stuff. Listeners should be writing down notes because in your experience as an angel investor, like knowing what you look for, I think is really important for entrepreneurs that are looking to start their own companies. You know, it's not just about the money and it yeah, shouldn't right. be. The thing I would say is transparency. I've had, including former employees of mine that I had incredible respect for. And I was kind of a mentor to in, in you know, the prior startup and then they started their own company. And when things weren't going so well, they started hiding on me. Like Jack Ma, they went underground, okay? And Not a good sign. They wouldn't answer my emails. They wouldn't take my phone calls. And, it was and that like, would make you ask more questions. Like, what the hell's going on? Well, at that point, you know something's wrong. They're and, ghosting and when you. I finally, you know, I remember one specific instance where I walked into a restaurant on Father's Day and one of, the, one of the two founders was sitting there with his family and I had to do everything I could just to wish him a happy Father's Day because it would not have been kind to have, you know, done an intervention right there, although I was tempted. But you know, the minute that they're not talking to you, something is seriously wrong. And, and I could have helped them, right? And so rather than hiding the fact that they're struggling, which is what all startups do, right? Why would you have an investor with my kind of background? if you didn't want my help. Totally. Right. So yeah. I want people that are willing to just be completely transparent. Let me help you. I've signed up to help you. You know, that's critical. Mm -hmm. Don't keep your 
fear of my potential change of my opinion because you're not doing well right now. I expected that. What about elevator pitch? Do you have any tips? What makes a good elevator pitch? You know, we all have the attention of a fruit fly these days, right? And I I hear so many terrible elevator pitches. The, the, The most typical elevator pitch starts with, they tell me why their product is so awesome. I really couldn't care less. An elevator pitch is like a mini novel. The great novelists hook us in the first sentence or the first paragraph. And right away, I want to read this book. There's many books I've started that were well-reviewed, but after three pages, I said, you know what? Life's too short. Didn't get you there. Yeah. Not (laughs) feeling it. I want to understand very, very, very quickly within 30 seconds or less, the persona that they're solving the problem for, right? Tell me as specifically as you can, whose problem you're solving, what problem they have, and why do you care so much? Why are you so invested in solving this problem? And if they can connect me to that, you know, that emotion, that, that energy, now I'm curious. Now I want to see how they resolve the problem, right? I want to see how they're able to make that person's life better or their, solve their job issue better. That's really good. It is like a story. You have to captivate and you have to get people to want more, to read more, to find out more. Absolutely. And if you don't get me with that, then, you know, we, we all have so many things running through our brains every day and you have to stand out, right? Sometimes, you know, you'll be one of 15, 20 people pitching and it's, you'd be surprised at how many experienced entrepreneurs still don't know this. Okay. And they start with the product and how great the product is and how many features. And it's like, I don't care. There's no context. If you tell me why this is solving a problem and now these features are relevant, now I care. So let's talk now about innovation. You talk about innovation a lot. I follow you on LinkedIn. You're always posting articles on innovation. What is innovation? What makes a company innovative? How can yeah. we be more innovative? Oh, wow. That's the, you got three hours for me? Right. Clear your your schedules, folks. All right. right. I mean, innovation, of course, is a loaded term and it's an overused term. And I want to draw the distinction between an invention and innovation and a disruptive innovation. Now, an invention often happens in a lab. It's typically some kind of scientific discovery. It may have no relevance to anybody. And of course, you know, for example, AJ's from the, the wonderfully generous country of Canada, where they invest massive, massive amounts of money through the National Research Council, right? The amount of money that universities invest in research that never goes anywhere is staggering, okay? And there's very few universities that are able to turn that research into commercial value. So let's say inventions are off to the side. Now, an innovation is typically an invention that has been commercialized, something novel that makes the world a better place. Now, that could be a better product, a better process, right? Um, you know, there's, you know, anything that improves upon the way things are today. But typically, it's a very incremental process that doesn't really change the world all that much. And then there are those world-changing innovations that are disruptive. The iPhone, I would consider the greatest disruptive innovation in history, period. Multiple billions of people using these phones, and not just the iPhone, but now the Android phone, right? 
it's changed everything. Or, you know, obviously Uber and Lyft, right? I mean, these are the kinds of things that have just changed the way that we interact with the world. You know, Skype did that a long time ago. They've kind of wiped out long distance calling and allowed us to connect. In many ways, Zoom has, has served that purpose more recently as we've learned how to collaborate with one another across distances. So disruptive innovations are world-changing, behavior-changing, and they're quite rare. And the, the thing that makes a disruptive innovation so extraordinary is that behavior change is really hard. And so in order to get someone to change their behavior, it's a lot more than just the technology. Right. And so when you think about the mythology of Steve Jobs, everyone said Steve Jobs woke up and God spoke to him and said, there will be an iPhone. It, that's not true at all. Johnny Ive, or now Sir Johnny Ive, knighted by Queen Elizabeth, is considered the greatest industrial designer of all time. And he was the guy doing all of the immersive customer discovery and customer validation work and creating that experience as he did for iTunes and the iPod. So most disruptive innovations understand intimately why people are dissatisfied with something and how you can completely recreate their experience to make it that much more deeply satisfying. So if someone's like, I want to start a disruptive company or like, yeah. I want to come up with a disruptive innovation, where would you say they start? Well, first of all, in an area that you have passion about, okay? Because when you're doing this kind of work, you have to be so unbelievably empathic about the customers whose lives you're trying to disrupt. Of course, disrupt in the positive way. You need to get to know them so well, know their dreams and their aspirations so well, their challenges and their frustrations so well. And then you need to be able to work closely with them to co-create the solution over time. And of course, you're going to get it wrong the first many, many times, right? I mean, let's look at Tesla, okay? Just today, Tesla reported its first ever full year profitability. Now, oh how goodness. old is Tesla? It's 17 years old. This is not some overnight success story. Think about the journey that Elon Musk has been on. Think about the number of times that Tesla has either been bankrupt or on the verge of bankruptcy. But Elon Musk had the audacious belief that you could create a mainstream automobile that ran completely on battery power. And you know what? Because he, he felt it was true, he could do it. 17 years. That's crazy. Okay. And he sleeps in the factory on a cot. Yeah. Okay. That's what you need. He's obsessed. He's obsessed. And, and there's a great quote by a British poet laureate, Lord Alfred Tennyson. It's only the unreasonable. And of course it was sexist because it's from the 1800s. It's only the unreasonable man that can change the world. Was Steve Jobs unreasonable? Hell yes. Is Jeff Bezos unreasonable? Hell yes. These are the people that are changing the world. They will not accept mediocrity. Didn't Steve Jobs say the people who are crazy enough to think they can change yeah. the world are the ones who do? Absolutely. Vote time. And, yeah, and, and listen, <laughs> there's a lot of truth to that, right? Every brilliant idea was once a stupid, crazy idea. Innovation and technology, and it also makes starting a business so much easier than ever before. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. So when I started my career, the only clouds were in the sky, right? If you wanted to start a, a tech company in the 90s, 
you'd raise 50 or $75 million. And most of it would go to buying servers and storage and a data center and hiring a large IT team before you could even think about writing a line of code, right? And so today with Amazon Web Services and Microsoft Azure, right? And all of the tools that are available, it changes everything, right? And that's obviously one piece. The second piece, of course, is all of the free information available to entrepreneurs, all of the acceleration programs, all the mentorship programs. Yeah, there's so much out there. There's so much out there, but the underlying foundation of any tech company is now, if it's not open source, it's free, or it's freemium and it's free, or it's incredibly affordable on a subscription basis, right? There was no SaaS model. If you wanted to buy software, you gave someone a seven-figure check and you bought software, right? Today, I'm going to, you know, use Marketo or I'm going to use um, HubSpot or I'm going to use Salesforce or all the right, other. Yeah. Paying, you know, I've got three people using it and I'm paying X dollars a month and I can afford that, right? So everything has changed. Last question for you, because this has been incredible and we could chat all day, but, you know. We, we got, we got a time limit. What would you, if you had like one massive piece of advice that you could give to an entrepreneur who is just starting out or like just starting their business, what would it be? I mean, listen, this, that's a tough question, but I'm going to say, be fearless. You could never pick a better time to realize your dream than when you're young and unencumbered without a mortgage without a big car payment, without nothing to lose, you got no downside. The only downside is you got to go do it again. Big deal. Okay. So I've seen so many people, I'm going to build this startup. I'm going to build a startup and 10 years go by and they're still, and then they regret because five other people came up with the idea. So I think for, for a younger audience, it's, it's be fearless and listen to your heart. Do it, it in a space that you are on fire for and then just go do it like Nike. Okay. Maybe Nike will sponsor this episode. <laughs> yeah, there just you go. Go do it. Okay. <laughs> Sponsored yeah. by. <laughs> we'll get some free Nike sneakers too. Well, that right. was very inspirational. I have chills. <laughs> I'm ready to go out there and do it and be cool. fearless. Awesome. <laughs> um, AJ, do you have any last questions? Where can people find you, Mike? Primarily on LinkedIn and I'll come up pretty quickly. And I'm, I go by Mike. I have a very famous cousin go by the name of Michael Grandinetti. And he is a very famous magician. He's been on the Super Bowl. He's been on TV. Very what cool. I often say to people when they're, when they're asking for unreasonable things is, I think you're looking for my cousin, the magician. Okay? <laughs> Let's have him on too. Yeah, you're, you're asking way too much. Where that, that Only a magician can do what you're looking for. Okay. But you can also find me on www.globalventurecatalyst.org. This is the global community that I've created with my colleague, uh, Dr. Iklak Sadu from University of California, Berkeley. And this is where we've created this extraordinary group of innovation and entrepreneurial minded students on five continents. Um, and we're connecting them with real projects for real companies and, you know, giving them the chance to put their wonderful educational um, journeys into hands-on experience day in and day out. Love it. Okay. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. Great Thank to, you so much for being on. It's a pleasure, Caitlin, to meet you. You're a great uh, interviewer. AJ, always a pleasure to reconnect. Enjoy Thank you, Mike. the warm weather. Savor it. <laughs> we will. We, we will. will. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you so much, Mike. All right, bye now, guys. Awesome. That was awesome, huh? We've been having some really great guests 
All right, folks. Well, thanks for tuning in. Please tune in again in two more weeks. We have a great guest next week. We'll see you then. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the 40 Under 40 podcast with Caitlin Cromit and AJ McQuarrie. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate that effort, and we'll catch you in the next episode.